morning, everybody. We are in the Gospel of Luke. We are going to finish up chapter 19 today, and we're going to start to bleed into chapter 20. But as we are going in that direction, I just want to just up front say, I am a Christian pastor. I am somebody that has a great deal of affection and affinity for the New Testament. But boy, I'll tell you, I enjoy the Old Testament. That big chunk at the front of your Bible, I love it, and here's why. That's a lot of messed up people, all right? So when you read the Old Testament, the the best image I can come up with, it's like watching a dysfunctional family on a really long road trip. That's, if you want to know, like the Old Testament in a a simple, encapsulated way, like that is it, right? So before there was Little Miss Sunshine, or National Lampoon's Vacation, or Are We There Yet? That great, like, Ice Cube classic. You know, all of those great stories of road trips gone wrong. Man, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were put in the fun and dysfunction. That was their mission, their goal, their objective. And you see that sort of build throughout a journey in the Old Testament. And so by the time you're getting to the end of that section of your Bible, you see kind of the pressure, the the challenge, the brokenness begins to kind of compress. Like you see uh, the, the problems are more and more obvious. And when we see that last part of the Old Testament, we oftentimes call that the minor prophets. And that's sort of an injustice, honestly, because for one, they're not minor. They have a major role to play. But the other reason is that we tend to, as sort of Protestant Christians, take those last 12 sections of the Old Testament and we break them up into pieces and we kind of read them independently. But if you go and look at the historical understanding of Israel and how they understood that section of their Bible, for them it was called the Book of the Twelve. It wasn't the final 12 books that are prophets, but rather it's 12 prophets that are all contributing to this singular book, the Book of the Twelve. And they're trying to tell the story that, again, Israel is adrift, it's not going in the right direction, but God is going to correct the course, and he's going to do things that then change the course of human history. And as you get to the very tail end of the book of the Twelve, there is this final writer. He's the Italian prophet Malici, and testing your Sunday school. All right, so now his name's Malachi. He's a Hebrew. He's not an Italian, Uh, but he writes this little section that gives us a sense of where God's story is going. He says in Malachi 3, and Malachi just means the messenger. That's literally what the name means. He says, look, this is God speaking, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord who you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And so that that last part of the Bible gives this promise that there is going to come a messenger that acts as a herald that says, everybody get ready because the king is coming, the Lord is coming, it's going to be God himself, and he's going to come to the temple himself, and he's going to proclaim his his captivity, or the captives are released, and the blind can see, and everything changes, and this is going to be this glorious event. That's the way the Old Testament, it ends. But then we fast forward to the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, we are introduced to this man named John, the first Baptist, right? And he proclaimed that there was one coming, a messenger, a king, the Lord himself would arrive, and he announces Jesus, and we've been following the life of Jesus, but then last week, 
we saw that Jesus is now entering the city, right? The Lord is coming to his temple. And it's the coming to the temple that we will be looking at today. And so as we get ready to see Jesus coming to the temple, what Jesus says at the temple, and the lesson we are to learn in light of that, uh, I want all of us to just kind of take a minute to kind of prepare our hearts, kind of silently pray, and then I will pray and we'll get right underway in Luke chapter 19. Jesus, we thank you that you are the God of good grace, and you are the God that in humility, in sacrifice, and in love came into this world, lived the perfect life, died a sinner's death so that we could be united with you, so that we could be changed by your good news. And I pray that from that we are truly a transformed people, and that we are a people that look and feel and sound like this grace that you communicate. And so I pray today, even as we're looking at a section where there is a level of tenseness among the players, uh, that in that too, we will see the beauty of your gospel and your relentlessness to keep pursuing those who are clearly hard to you. And from that, I pray that that would be our disposition in the world as well. And so Jesus, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in your good and kind name. Amen. So, uh, like I was saying, this last week, uh, we saw that Jesus finally enters into the city, right? And so here he comes rolling through, the crowds are gathering, everything is swelling, everybody's cheering, but what we saw in the scene is as they are cheering, Jesus is weeping. He's looking at the city, he sees the heart condition, he sees the problem. His heart is broken, in fact, over the situation before him. Because what he knows on this Palm Sunday, because that's exactly what that day was, when you kind of have, we have Palm Sunday here in another week, and you hear that, that's commemorating the day that Jesus entered the city. And it's on that day that, man, the majority of the people are very excited. But that's Sunday. And Jesus knows Friday's coming. And all these people that are super stoked to see him roll into town because they have all these preconceived ideas of what he's going to do, they're really pumped on that Sunday. But he knows by Friday, they will call for his execution. They will not rally to his cause. They will be turned off by who he is. And yet, even in light of that, Jesus is relentless with his vision and his dream and his love and his grace and his desire to reach. Like, he knows how this plays out. And yet, he continues to try to do another thing to win, to woo, to change, to compel them to something different. And so he enters the city and no sooner does he get into the city, he goes immediately to the hub, not just of the, the, the capital at large, but the hub of the whole religious system. He goes straight to the temple itself. And so what did Malachi tell us? Right? There was going to be a messenger, and he would herald the way of the Lord who would come, and the Lord would come to his temple. That's the scene today. The Lord is coming to the temple. And so in verse 45 of Luke 19, it says, Then Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. 
And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, this has a little bit of historical background we have to touch on really quick to understand what the scene's all about but jesus is coming into the city uh, during the time of the passover so the passover goes all the way back again into the old testament when the dysfunctional road trip started back in exodus right so israel was in egypt they were in slavery god says i'm busting you out and so god brings these plagues on egypt and the final plague is going to be the death of all the firstborn but it's in that context that god says here's the deal if you sacrifice an animal and you put the blood of the animal over the top of your doorway when i'm coming through the land if i see that sign on your house i will pass over your house your house won't have judgment i'll pass over that but anybody that doesn't have that symbol uh, they will have the judgment of the death of the first and that's what happens during that scene in Exodus. And from that, that's called the Passover. And so it was from that that Israel was passed over when it comes to the judgment of God. They were freed from their captivity. And eventually, they go into the promised land where they then just make a mess of things for the rest of their history. Right? Just completely dependent on the grace of God and the mercy of God because they weren't typically very obedient to God. But what they would do every year is come to Jerusalem and commemorate that Passover. But by the time of the first century, instead of everybody bringing their own animals for sacrifice for the Passover, what they would do instead is say, man, that's a lot of work. You've got to load up the kids, load up the animals. That's nutty. We'll just get to the city, and when we get there, we will buy a sacrificial animal at the temple, and then we will have it sacrificed in the name of our family. That's the way it would work. So they would show up, and it's like, okay, time to buy an animal for sacrifice. But the temple would say, ah, here's the deal. See, this is a holy sacrifice, and you've got Roman currency, and that's dirty money. So if you want to buy a holy, clean animal, you have to exchange your dirty money for clean money. You have to exchange Roman currency for temple currency, right? So that makes sense. And then you use the temple currency to buy your sacrificial animal. The problem is they're like, ooh, how could we make some money on this? I know how. It's going to cost you, like, let's say, two Roman coins for one temple coin. Therefore, we're going to get this like increase on the exchange rate, and we'll make some extra bank. That's kind of the idea, right? So, so what they're doing is beginning to cheat the people in the name of religion, right? That's the spirit of it. And they're robbing them in this sense. In fact, it reminds me of like, remember when you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you pay like 50 bucks in tokens to get all those tickets? And then you go to the concession stand and you get a $5 thing out of all those tickets that you took 50 bucks to. It's the same idea, right? Just ripping you off, man. So Jesus sees this, and he sees it's the toxin of religion. He sees what's happened in the name of God, that they're trying to profit off the name of God. So he's rolling in, and he's, this place being a house of prayer, you are instead praying on the people. Not P-I-P-R, praying on people in the name of God. Corrupt. And it's still corrupt to this day, right? Where, where organizations, institutions, churches, whatever it is, they make the faith. And just as there is today, there was then, and in both cases, Jesus is sickened by that. And so the very first thing he does is he goes in and he brings confrontation. But in this confrontation, I don't think his goal is simply to say, hey, you guys are awful, I'm going to roll. No, I actually think more than condemnation, what he's doing here is a type of consecration, a type of cleansing of the temple. 
In other words, he doesn't just flip out and walk away. No, he's seeking to drive out this toxin so he can then introduce what is most important. So he cleans the house so he can command the house. That's kind of what's going on because immediately he says, after that, he taught daily in the temple. So he doesn't ransack and then just go do stuff the rest of the week. He makes the temple the base of operation for the remainder of that final week of his life. So every day, he's rolling in. All right, we clean this thing out on Sunday. So now, man, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're teaching here. And what is he seeking to emphasize? Well, we're going to see in a minute. It's the real good news the world needed to hear. Now, what I love about this, just as a side note, is Luke here at the end of his gospel is tying up some fun loose ends or making certain connections that got built earlier or whatever else. And so the last time Jesus was at the temple teaching, he was 12 years old in Luke's gospel, which I think is cool. And when he was there, man, he crushed it. Like people are like, whoa, who's this kid? The kid knows so much. And they were amazed at his teaching. Well, today they're more than amazed. Like there's extremes and how the population is hearing Jesus some are positive, some are negative. So he's teaching daily at the temple. It says, but the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. Not big fans of his preaching, I guess, right? Hopefully, you just go like, we don't care for Matt, we're gonna go to another church. I hope you don't plot to kill me, all right? So we'll, just, we'll, we'll, we'll do something else, all right? But they couldn't do anything. They couldn't take any action, Why? Because all the people hung on every single word he was saying, right? So again, it's early in the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, everybody's digging it, the leaders aren't digging it, they're frustrated, but they can't do anything because they know everybody's really just like, man, this guy's got it, this is our king, he's finally gonna kick butt, take names, we're gonna be reigning supreme again, riding high, it's gonna be fantastic, that's kind of the spirit of things. The leaders aren't buying it, but that's where the people are at. That's kind of the situation they find themselves in. So what you have on the scene are people that are hanging and people that are hating, right? That's all right there. There's a divide that's already occurred. And what Jesus is teaching that is making the leader so angry, right? And what's making the people lean into what he has to say is this. It says, Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple. I love that. Right? Because go back again to the beginning of Luke. In his very first week of ministry, he goes to his hometown, goes to the hometown synagogue, cracks open the book of Isaiah, and begins to read. And he reads the good news. He preaches the gospel week one of his ministry. It says this in Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There's that word gospel. Good news, gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Right? All of that is in there. And so when we look at Luke's gospel, we go, well, what is the good news from week one? Well, the good news is that God is going to bust everybody out. 
The good news is that finally the poor have somebody that cares for them. Those who are held captive, there's one that's coming for them. They're going to be liberated in ways they didn't know possible. That's good news. The good news is this temple that stands as this testimony to religious fervor is going to be done away with and something new is going to come. Jesus has already talked about this throughout his ministry, like in John 4, meets this woman who's a Samaritan at a well, and they're talking about where do you worship? And she's like, well, some people go to your temple and some people go to our mountain. And Jesus goes, right, but the day is coming where it's not going to be the mountain or temple. It's going to be the spirit. It's going to be in truth and honesty from the heart. That's where this is all going to go because of good news. And the good news is built on the fact that God himself will come into the system and God himself will lay himself down and God himself will serve. It's sort of obvious. He's like, hey, if you want to stick with religion, feel free. You can have the bondage, the baggage, the burden, or you can choose to follow me. If you are heavy laden and burdened, follow me and I'm going to give you rest. Do life in my way and I will bring healing to your souls. So he's preaching good news every day up against the backdrop of a temple that has been nothing but promoting bad religion. So what do you want more? Bad religion or good news? This is why people are hanging on his every word. Some are hanging with hope, and some are hanging with hate. That's why the religious leaders and the priests and everybody else, they come up to him and they say, hey, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to come in here, right? So just picture the scene, right? They think this is their building their space they own it they operate it it's there under their management and then suddenly jesus rolls in clears shop one day starts preaching every day and they're like wow this dude just thunderstruck the place right this is our dojo but he came in took over and he thinks it's his dojo now this is a problem they're frustrated by it because they're like hey did you fill out the tps reports on this jesus did you actually put in for you know right to use this you know it's like that's the problem and so they're asking this question, by what authority? And you got to understand, the word authority is big in their world, right? Everything's about authority. Who has the authority? What kind of authority do you wield? And so they're saying, hey, who's, whose documentation did you fill out to get the stamp of approval that you could do this? And I'm sure Jesus is just like, you guys are cute, man. Because you're asking, by what authority? If they would have asked, by whose authority? That would have been a much more accurate question. Because he would have been like, uh by mine. This is my house. I'm God, fools. Like, that's, that's what this is. But they're thinking, no, we're the ones in charge. This is our space. We have the right to do whatever, right? But what I love about that, too, is this idea of authority. Because back in week one of his ministry, right, everything coming full circle, back in week one, he preached the gospel, and the people said, by what authority does he speak? He speaks with such authority, it's different than the old crusty drivel of religion. It's so different. And so now this authority question comes up again. By what authority, right? They're frustrated that the authority that he's using is actually compelling authority. It's life-transforming authority. It's an authority that causes people to be different, to change, to love in ways they never loved before, to elevate people out of lowliness and into their greatness. Like, all this is happening by what he does, and they're frustrated because, frankly, they're envious because they're not any good at that. And they're not any good at that because they're drawing off of their own strength. They're not drawing off of 
God's strength. So this is a clash of authorities, right? Jesus has authority that brings life. They wield an authority that only leads to death, and you can feel it in the air. But they're gripping to their authority, right? They have a death grip on their strength, and so they ask this question. But let's be clear, man, this ain't a question. This is a statement, right? They don't really want to know. They've already concluded it's an artificial authority. He doesn't belong here. He shouldn't be wielding his message in this way. But they want to know. Where do you get this from? So in verse 3, he says, well, let me ask you a question first. He said, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Now, on the surface of this, you're like, that's kind of a weird place to go, right? John's been pushing daisies since chapter 9. Like, he has not been on the scene for a while. But go back to Malachi. There's a messenger that comes before the Lord. John was the messenger who came before Jesus. And so in that, what Jesus is trying to get at is like, okay, how do you guys see John? Because that's going to dictate a lot about how you see me and therefore what my authority is all about. Because here's what he's getting at. He's saying, if John was a true prophet, let's just play with it for a minute. If John was a true prophet, and then in light of that, he confirmed that I was the true Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He said that in John chapter 1, right? So if, if he's a true prophet, and he said, I am the true Messiah, then my authority hails from my, my sense of rulership, my royalty. And therefore, based on this, this authority issue, and who has authority in your dojo, well, it's my dojo, and I have the authority, and you really don't. So who do you say John was? Because if you think he was a prophet, then I am fully qualified for this. Now, if you think he was a fraud, then I'm not qualified. So you just got to decide. Do you think John was cuckoo kachoo or he was the real deal? That's, that's what they have to figure out, right? So he puts them on the spot with this. So what do they do? They break into an unholy huddle, and they talk it over among themselves, verse 5. They say, well, if we say he was from heaven, uh, and, and then we ask, they ask why we didn't believe in John, we're going to get in trouble, but if we say he was merely human, the people will stone us because they are convinced John was a prophet. Man, a lot of people want to kill people on this day. Everybody's throwing rocks. So finally, they replied that they didn't know, right? So this is brilliant. Instead of having principles, you just roll right to politics, right? It's like, well, if we say yes, then Jesus wins out. And if we say no, then the crowds wig out. So we'll say, pleading the fifth, I'm not going to say. I'm just going to cheat it, right? No comment. So Jesus is like, cool, you don't have a comment? Then I don't either, right? Verse 8, he responded, well then, I won't tell you by what authority I do these things either. Right? He just makes it real simple. And, and part of this is just, it, it's obvious, right? He's not going to tell them because they don't care anyway. No matter what answer he gives, it's not the answer they want because they've already decided that his authority threatens their authority. See, everybody's wielding authority in their world. So Rome wields an authority at the end of a spear or a sword. And that authority causes you to fall in line and do what you're told. And then Jerusalem, they wield authority. 
They use the scriptures and the scribes and they use shame to keep the people under control. But then Jesus has this other kind of authority that's rooted in love and grace and mercy and transformation and true holiness and true righteousness. Like all of that is in play with this authority. And, and so this is why it's all clashing together in this final week. The authority of Rome, the authority of Jerusalem, the authority of God. I wonder who's going to win, right? Well, that's all in play. Sadly, they have rejected Jesus, and therefore they've rejected his authority. And because of that, they've rejected both their hopes and their future. So what does Jesus do in light of this? What Jesus loves to do. Crisscross, applesauce, another story, all right? Tells a story. Verse 9. It says, Now Jesus turned to the people again, and he told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and then moved to another country to live for several years. At that time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crops. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him, and they chased him away. What will I do, the owner asked. I know. I will send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and they murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them, Jesus asked. He says, I tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. He's going to go Will Smith on their Chris Rock. That's what he's going to do, right? Like, that's it, right? So, like, Jesus tells the story, and you got to understand, everybody sitting there knows all the players, right? This is not a mystery. So they're like, oh, okay, so the, the vineyard planter is God. The vineyard is Israel, which was a common understanding of Israel. They were God's vineyard. You see it in Isaiah chapter 5. The tenants that are wicked are the leadership. And then the servants who keep getting sent are the prophets, the book of the 12, Isaiah, Jeremiah, like these guys that keep coming to Israel saying, God's trying to get your attention. God's trying to confront your heirs. God has a plan for you as a nation. Get back on board with the plan. Stop making it about you. Make it about him. Like that's what they keep doing. And every time Israel's like, nope, nada, don't want it. Go pound sand. Not interested today. We've got our agenda. We have our authority. We're playing by our rules. We have our vision for life. Like all of that was going on. And so they are resistant. But the story has that other element. Perhaps I send my son and they will receive him. And of course, in the story, then you see the foreshadowing. They're just going to drag him out of the city and impale him to a cross, right? That's the drag out of the vineyard and murder, right? All of it's in there. But everybody listening, they're, they're tracking with most of the players in the story. They're understanding the metaphor that is there. And th this fact that Jesus comes to rescue, reclaim, rise up people, raise up people from one state to another state. The first question is, man, have you embraced that? Like maybe today you're sitting here going, man, I've never embraced Jesus as the one who rescues me. I've never acknowledged that his cross deals with my sin. His resurrection proves everything he did was true, and that can change my life. 
What's cool about what Christian faith is all about is you don't have to go through like 15 steps and 20 principles and take a test at the end and all this other stuff. You just simply say, Jesus, I, I am giving myself completely over to you. I, I see my sin. I see your goodness. Please take my life. Forgive me. Take my life over. I believe what you've done for me, and I want to follow and live for you. I believe life is better with you, Jesus, because you give abundant life. See, if that's the space you find your heart or soul in today, then for you, it's just a prayer, just an authentic prayer before Jesus that says, hey, I'm all in, I'm all yours. Forgive me, lead me. I wanna go where you're going. I wanna love what you love. If you make that your prayer in your way, that's the entry level, man. That's how you're in. That's how you begin to follow. But maybe for some of us, we go, you know, I just, I know I, I have not been loving what he loves, even though I'm a lover of Jesus, I'm a follower, but I don't always love what he loves. And you go, today, it's just a time of me being able to recalibrate and reset. Because the word repent just means change of mind. Like, I, I gotta get my thinking going this way because it's been going that way, so I wanna go this way now. So, so maybe for some of us, it's just like, I just need to reset. Jesus, forgive me. Help me to get on track again. It's awesome, he loves that. He's like, sweet, high fives, let's do this. Right? We saw that in Luke before, right? Like God's freaking out, the angels are like, whoa, this is a big celebration in heaven today when anybody has a change of mind and repentant heart. So I say all of that because today is communion. And right now we're going to prepare for our time. And, and, and communion is co-union with Christ and co-union with one another. And what that's all about is we all agree on Jesus' vision and Jesus' kingdom values. We agree on his gospel. We've all been touched by that. And we remember what he's done for us to make that good news possible. And so as the worship team comes up right now, I want you to go ahead and, and simply grab your elements. I was joking with Crystal in the back before the service that getting into our communion elements is a bit like getting into a pack of batteries. I understand that's a little tricky to get into these, these cups here. But I hope that doesn't detour, detour our, our focus in our heart on what this is about, right? This, this is... This is a means of grace, we call it. It's a way in which we connect with Jesus in an authentic way, in a spiritual way. There's something special about this moment together. There's something special about these elements. I don't understand the details of that above my pay grade, but I know it's special. And I know we do this to remember how, how far God was willing to go to bring good news. He was willing to give himself as a servant, as a slave, as a sacrifice. And in the midst of his deepest suffering on the cross, he doesn't say, I'm done, you humans, you're, you're toast. He just says, forgive them. They don't even understand what it is they're doing. See, that's the links in which he's willing to go to forge these things. And so the very first communion is still the communion to this day in the sense that he says, after this meal, he gives thanks, takes bread, he breaks it, and he tells all of his followers, right, he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he takes a cup of wine. He says, this is a new covenant, a new agreement, a, a, a new pledge of unity and conviction and commitment and love between myself and you. It's going to be accomplished through the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, 
we are incredibly grateful for so rich a grace and so generous a love. You sacrificed all for us. May we lovingly respond, not in sacrifice, but rather in joy and gratitude for what you've done for us. We thank you in your good name. Amen.